The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, nine o'clock. Nice to see you all in person. Uh, Glad that you are with us. Welcome online, friends and family and guests. We love you as well. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. Uh, thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday with us uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you brought one with you, can you open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 4? Uh, that's where we're going to be today. We're not really verse-on-screen type people, so you can open a phone or a tablet. Uh, I think paper means that you're going to be closer to Jesus in heaven, but, you know, whatever. Uh, 1 Samuel 4 is where we're going to be. Hey, online people, I would just encourage you as well to find a Bible, whether it's online, there's a little Bible tab on our online app, but uh, 1 Samuel 4 is where we're going to spend our time. I really want you to see what's in the text this morning. Uh, I told y'all last year, but um, when my daughter was four, uh, we have one daughter and she is five now, but when she was four, uh, I was planning on taking her to Target uh, to buy her a toy because she had received a $20 cash gift from my, uh, my mom, from grandma for Christmas. Okay, she was given 20 bucks. And so she had some cash she could spend on like a Lego or like a princess dress or, you know, so I, I just figured that was what she was going to go for. And so I talked to her that morning. We were planning on going later. And, I, and I'm like, okay, sweetie, um, what do you want to spend your money on? Like, what are you going to spend your $20? What do you want to buy with that? What kind of toy are you looking at? And I'm just praying at this point that I don't have to talk her off some ledge of like a hundred dollar life-size frozen doll. Right, you know what I'm talking about? Like just trying to mitigate the circumstance a little bit. Okay, 20 bucks can only get you this much, not that much, you know? Uh, but, but without wavering, uh, she said this. She said, I want a box. You see, we had, we had just moved houses. We'd moved into our new home and, and I had bought some boxes from Home Depot and she took one and played with it, right? She took one and colored on it and cut it and made it into a car and then into a house and then into a fort. And then when it got broken down to the point where duct tape would not hold it together, its integrity had been compromised. We, we, we pitched that thing, you know, the box, okay? Uh, and so I said, I said, you want a box? She said, yes, I want a box. I said, you don't want a Lego? She said, no, I want a box. I said, you don't want a princess dress? She says, no, I want a box. I was like, you don't even want that $100 Elsa? You don't want that? No, daddy, I want a box. So I bought her a $2 box and I pocketed the rest of the cash. All right, that's... uh, now, Now, I just want you to know, a box, a box can be a lot of fun. I mean, it really is. It's a, it's a great thing, okay? Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but today, we're going to start talking about a box, all right? We're going to talk about a box. And, and even though you can have fun with, some, with a box, the, the, the reality is if you know what's going on, you realize that what's inside the box, what comes in the box, tends to be more valuable, more important, and actually better than the box itself. So I'm calling this sermon today, Get Out of the Box, Get out of the box. We're going to, for the next four weeks, uh, jump into a lengthy sequence in 1 Samuel chapter 4 known as the Ark Narrative. 
the arc narrative for these next few chapters, that's what we're going to be digging into. And having started this book, we, we were following the journey of a, a young man named Samuel. We saw the birth of Samuel, the growth of Samuel. We, last week, we talked about the call of God on Samuel's life uh, as, as Israel's new prophet. And now Samuel disappears from the story for a few chapters. And, and the writer of First Samuel focuses in on the story of the ark, the ark of the covenant. So here we go. First, Samuel chapter four. We're going to start in verse one. Let's dig into this together. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Okay, so pause for just a second. Uh, the first thing that we need to en- engage with is this idea of the, who the Philistines are. Now, very likely you are familiar, if you spent any time in church or any time in the Old Testament, you're familiar with the Philistines, especially due to the most famous Philistine, a guy named Goliath. Okay, we'll get to him eventually. But, but the Philistines first show up uh, in the Bible in the book of Judges, which is a couple books back. And, and now by Samuel's time, uh, the Philistines are actually the main force of opposition and threat to Israel. Okay, this is a counter-Israeli people group in this time period, okay? They don't like each other. That's what you need to know going forward. So look at verse two. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, here's a trick I learned in seminary. I spent a lot of money to know this trick, so I'm giving it to you for free. You can slip me some cash later, okay? Uh, but, but here's the trick. The Philistines, they're the scourge of God's people in these, in these next few books. Um, between the Israel, Israel and the Philistines, uh, you can see something of a barometer. This is the trick. You see a barometer for how God's people are doing with their relationship with the Lord, that's what you kind of see in this, these, these skirmishes and these engagements between God's people in Israel and the Philistines, okay? If um, the Israelites had the upper hand over the Philistines, that's a sign that they were kind of faithfully following the Lord at that time. But if they were defeated, the Bible portrays this as a divine sign of rebuke from the Lord. That's what you, you're going to see this as we march through 1 Samuel. You're going to see this, the, the, the Philistine barometer is what we'll call it. Now, what we're going to see in verse three is a, is a prime example of this, okay? So in verse three, right after uh, the, the battle was lost, verse three says, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So that's the question that they raise, okay? The elders of Israel are correct in their assertion here when they, when, they, when they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? Because they see it correctly here, okay? They are correct in linking the battle being lost, not due to the might of the Philistines, but rather due to the Lord's intervention, that's how we're supposed to see these things because under, under the terms of the old covenant in this Old Testament world, Israel's success or failure in battle was a direct sign of God's favor or displeasure with them. Okay, in their, in their success or failure, it would be a direct result of their, of their obedience or their disobedience to God. So Israel correctly recognizes that God is actually the active agent in this defeat, okay? 
But, but, but then, instead of considering where they had been disobedient and trying to fix that, they quickly moved to the wrong conclusion of what to do next. So let's pick up the rest of verse three. They say, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And here's their response. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Verse four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So you see, instead of re- reflecting on where they may have been disobedient and why the Lord might actually cause the Philistines to win against them, instead of reflecting and repenting of those things in their disobedience, instead they, they devise a plan. They devise a plan of their own making and they decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from Shiloh to the battle. Now, let's talk about the Ark for just a minute, okay? The Ark of the Covenant is a box. It's a box made of acacia wood, but then it is covered in gold. Lots of fancy gold figures. There's cherubim, gold cherubim or angel sort of things there. Uh, and, and inside of the ark, there's a bunch of stuff. But most importantly, there's the Ten Commandments. Those, those tablets from Moses that he brought from Sinai back down to God's people. Those are contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And the ark is a representation of the presence of God. I mean, this is like all of God's glory, all of, all of God's holiness, everything is, is part of, it's tied to this Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, okay, it has kind of a widespread popular intrigue as, uh, and this is in the past, but also all the way to today, okay, uh, of, of this religious talisman to access some sort of divine power or magic. You all know what's coming. Let's take a look at a video clip just for everybody's benefit. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. It's a transmitter. All right. Uh, uh, now, I've been on an 80s kick for the last few weeks, so you're welcome for that, okay? But, um, but this is the thought. I mean, it's not just in Indiana Jones. This is the thought for the elders of Israel. Their thought is, we get the ark, we get a victory. That's what's going on in their minds. And, and, and there is some precedence for this move, Right? Like if we go back to the book of Joshua, if we go back to the book of Judges, we will remember uh, that that, that the the ark was central in how they took the land, how the Israelites took the promised land, okay? The river stopping at the Jordan, the ark was central there. That was in Joshua 3 and 4. The destruction of Jericho, I mean, this was a big deal when, when all they had to do was strike up the marching band and bring the ark around the walls of Jericho and the, what happened, the walls came a tumbling down. It was the, the ark. I mean, so there's this precedence set that the ark is a key to their victory. But here's where I want to make our first point. My first point this morning is this. God will not be manipulated. God will not be manipulated. 
Because I think the, the, the thinking of the elders of Israel is this, that their assumption is, if we bring the ark into battle, God will have to deliver us. The only reason why we didn't win the first time is because we didn't have the box. And, and this is what is proposed in Indiana Jones. And, and frankly, I think this is why Israel doesn't reflect and repent but instead they go to Shiloh and they grab the ark and they bring Hophni and Phinehas, these sketchy priests with them to kind of back up their decision to get God's box is to have God's power. I think that's what they are believing here. But I think the truth is they got to get out of the box. This is not faith. This is superstition. There's a great difference there. Commentator uh, Dale Davis puts it like this. I'll read this quote. He says, when we operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to him, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. You see, instead of dealing with their own nation's disobedience in following God, they try to manipulate the situation and get God to do their bidding. But listen to me, God will not be manipulated. He will not. And the key for for me is actually in verse three. If you look at verse three again, this is the, the language. It says, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come and save us. Go ask, go go get the ark, essentially. Go get the ark that it might save us. They're trusting in an it. The ark, the box, that's what they're trusting in. And And I think this is where it can apply to us as well. Let me ask you this. Is there an it that you might trust in a little bit more than the Lord? Is there an it? Is there a, a thing that you're relying on frankly, so you don't have to worry or deal with obeying God fully. And these it's come in lots of shapes and sizes for us, church. Um, A spiritual discipline can be an it. And I'm all for the disciplines, yo. You know that, okay? But, But is the it that you might be trusting in your Bible reading or your prayer life or your fasting or, or your church attendance? All good things. They can be an it though. You can trust in the it of your, your baptism or, or your family heritage, how you were raised or your church membership. All of these things, they can be it's that you trust in. You're desirous of God's blessing in, in whatever way in your life. You're just hoping that, that God's gonna, you know, may, maybe it's a better marriage, give you a better marriage or, or give you a better business or give you better behaved children or even just a clearer conscience. You just wanna sleep better at night, so you just want a clearer conscience. But, but, but the truth is you are avoiding a confrontation with the God who demands that you be changed completely into his likeness. Do you want God for what he can do for you without dealing with the mess of actually dealing with him? An it can become very tantalizing at that point. You see, we're never saved by an it, by a thing. You're never saved by even a good thing. We're never saved by an it. We're only saved by a him. You're not saved by Christianity. You're saved by Christ. There's a huge difference. 
Oh, church, I think this is a relevant passage for us because God will not be manipulated. Okay, let's look at the results. We're going to move on. Look at verses five through nine. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines had heard of the ark. They'd heard of this God. They call it gods, but they, you can see their worldview coming out in how they say it. But, but they, they had heard of this God. They, they mention Egypt and they're referring back to the Exodus, the story of, of God pulling his people out of Egypt and sending plagues on the most powerful nation at that time. So they're worried. They know about this God. They, they know of his reputation. They're afraid when they hear the, the, the Israelites chanting and screaming and excited in camp. You're not normally excited after a defeat. The God of Israel has a good reputation as a deliverer of his people. So they undoubtedly enter into this next battle with some trepidation. They're afraid. They have to muster up, be courageous, Act like men fight, O Philistines. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So the ploy of the elders of Israel didn't pan out the way they had hoped. Okay, not only were they defeated again in battle, uh, but now the very priests they brought with them to help them were killed. And very worst of all, the ark of God was captured by Israel's greatest enemy. And it, I don't know if you notice this, but the numbers are interesting. Back in verse two, the number in the first skirmish that are defeated was 4,000. But this time, 30,000 soldiers of Israel are slaughtered. All the fear, all the trepidation, all the stories about Israel's God, all the reputation and respect that the Philistines must have had for this God are now shattered. And we'll see this in a couple more weeks, but they have lost all their reverence and respect for this God, for Yahweh. God will not be manipulated, but it goes a bit further in this text. And it's my next point. God will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. God would rather suffer his own shame 
than allow for you to live in a delusion that you're okay with him. Oh, church, in our hope that an it will save us, we put our very witness to the rest of the world at risk. The Philistines now, and we'll see this, will openly mock Israel's God. You may have heard the story of a prosperity gospel preacher who preached a message that if you just have enough faith, you will have blessings. You will have health and you will have wealth and you can be cured of your ailments. You just have to have enough faith. Your your blessing, your prosperity is directly linked to your faith. And of course, the faith is important, but also making a generous donation to my ministry is important, right? So so it's a bit backwards, okay? But but you may have heard the story of the same preacher who preached this message when his wife came down with stage four cancer now all of a sudden has to not only reckon with his crass theology, but also with the fact that he made, he made a fool of himself, but he also made a fool of his God. Like people are not only offended by his actions, but they mock his God as well. God will often suffer shame rather than allow for you to keep living in this pattern of sin. It's not just in this circumstance. It's when you're a Christian and you treat your coworkers poorly. It's when you're a Christian and you drink too much with your neighbors on the weekends. It's when you're a Christian and you cut that guy off in traffic with a fathom sticker on the back of your car, okay? Don't do that. Don't cut me off either, all right? You're putting God to shame in those moments but often God will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on in this false relationship with him. You gotta get out of the box. Now, I do wanna make a third point because I don't know that you can do a sermon without three points, okay? Um, But let let me make my final point by asking a question. Does God still do this kind of stuff? Like, does God still work in this way? because it seems like a very Old Testament thing for God to do. And it seems kind of old. It seems kind of like Old Testament, Old Testament God, but we're, we're, we're New Testament Christians. Like we're under the, the new covenant. We've got Jesus, right? So we're saved by grace. Does, does God actually do this kind of thing anymore? Does he do this kind of thing anymore? Does God still, this is the question, does God still judge his people like this? Well, I want to answer it like this. In some ways, no. Jackie, don't you even worry. We love you. We love Caroline too. Does God, okay, so follow me here. Bring it back in. Here we go. Does God still judge his people like this? In some ways, no. In other ways, yes. Let me explain, okay? The New Testament teaches us that for followers of Jesus, the punishment for sin has already been dealt out. If you are in Christ, your sin is covered. Okay, your your sins have, in the past tense, already been pardoned because of the work of Jesus on the cross. So 
Yes, that's true, okay? If you are a Christian, okay? Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, this is not true for you. Okay, this is not true if you are not a Christian. To quote the Apostle Paul, you are still in your sins. And to those who are maybe not Christians with us here online or in the room, I would just say, today can be the day. Today could be the day for you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ and be made right with him. And you too can have your sins covered. But Christian, if you're a Christian in here, your sins have already been judged. You have already been made right with God. So in that way, this is a little bit different than it worked in the Old Testament. Okay, it's a little different. But in another way, yes, God does still work like this. You see, the New Testament also teaches that there is a present judgment for those who are in Christ. You see, at the cross, Jesus saves us from hell, from eternal separation from God. He does all of those things. Those things count for you on the cross. But as you all know, we all still sin. We all still fall short. And hear me, there are still consequences for that sin. And God still judges us as we sin. We saw this last year when we studied 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, but when we are judged by the Lord, in the present tense, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God is presently judging us by disciplining us. And, and, and who, to whom does he discipline? Does God discipline? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God will not be manipulated. God will suffer shame. And my final point, God will discipline you. God will discipline you, hear me, if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. God will allow for, and even at times provide you with, storms in your life to wake you up. Discipline to redirect you to him. God will discipline you. So the illustration that came to mind as I'm thinking about this this week is the the illustration of a storm, a storm. And and the the thing that came to mind was a hurricane. So here's a picture of Hurricane Harvey from uh, the International Space Station. That was 2017 when Harvey hit Texas. Okay, remember this? Uh, I, I just see that image and I think that's terrifying. That's a terrifying Image is a category four storm. And, and so the reason a hurricane like Harvey can exact so much damage on a place is that during its peak, a hurricane can have winds around its edge that sustain at 150 to 175 miles per hour. That's some, some wind. Like I can't get my head around that. So I had to do some math. All right, here's how it works. Okay, here, let's get our heads around 175 miles an hour wind. Uh, imagine you leave here today. 
Okay, you get out of here, you jump in your Prius, and you hit uh, 470, okay? And you, I, I, just, I just assume you drive a Prius, okay? Uh, but imagine you get in your Prius, you hit 470, and you get that little rocket up to 90 miles an hour. You just get that thing. Now, now don't do that, okay? If you get pulled over and you're like, well, my pastor said, like, no, don't, okay? Don't do this. But, but just imagine you're going 90 in the Prius, and at 90, that thing's going to start to shake a little bit. Even if it's a well-built Toyota, it's going to be like, it's going to be a little unnerving because you're going to be aware that you're going fast, faster than they say you should be going, right? Well, double that, stick your head out the window, and that's a hurricane. <laughs> that's a hurricane. And I don't know about you, but my experience and the testimony of Scripture is that when God disciplines me, his way most often isn't to save me from the storm, but to, to deliver me through the storm. God's way most often, I use that as a caveat, okay? But his way most often isn't like helicopter dad flying in, dropping the basket down and pulling me out of the storm. Most often he does not save us from the storm, but rather he delivers us through the storms. This has been my experience following Jesus thus far. When I, when I, it doesn't matter what kind of storm I'm in, whatever the storm is, big or little, and I raise my hand for help from the Lord, and I cry out, and, it's, and listen, at this point, it's not, I'm not in some like awesome, spiritually mature place of trust and courage in that moment. Like, I believe God is able, right? I believe that, and we are more than conquerors in Christ. Take my hand. Like, I'm not in that place. Like, I'm in the storm, and when I raise my hand, my message to him is like, help! Help me! I raise my hand. I say, Father, help me. This wind is it's beating the snot out of Help me get out of this mess. And it's like my, my heavenly father, more often than not, takes my hand and just says, I love you, my son. And he doesn't lift me out of the storm, but it's like he drags me through it. I'm like, I can't see. I don't know where we're going. What's happening? He's like, I know. I know. That's part of it. I'm like, Father, some of this isn't, I didn't even create this storm. Some of this isn't even my fault. He's like, I know. I know. I'm with you. I'm like, why, Lord? Why wouldn't you just save me? You can do it. Why wouldn't you just save me from this? And he's like, no. No, I'm going to deliver you through this. Maybe the reason God allows us to face these storms is, is that he wants to blow away every part of our lives that doesn't look like Jesus so that he's all that we have left. Maybe the reason why he allows for these storms is because we go into life with so much bondage clung to us and we're so bound up and it's only by the winds of a storm that those bindings can be loosened and blow away. I mean, I don't know about you, but when do you learn the most? When everything's going awesome? Or when you're so desperate for the Lord 
that if he doesn't show up, you just know you're smoked. This still happens, church. God will discipline you to get you out of the box. So this is a warning passage. This Old Testament story is a warning passage, but I do want to note one last thing before we finish up. Did you notice in verse 11, the very last verse, did you notice in verse 11 that it clearly said that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died? This is a direct fulfillment of what God said he was going to do. Right? I mean, back in chapter two, verse 34, this is what it says. God said, uh, and this that shall come upon you, your son, uh, upon your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Now, what I read in verse 11 then shows me that this surely is a sign that God is behind this defeat. Right? Yes, God will not be manipulated. He will not be manipulated, but even in Israel's attempt to use God for their own gain, in that moment, his promises are fulfilled. Yes, God will suffer shame rather than allow for you to carry on this false relationship with him, but in his perceived shaming, he is establishing his very word. And yes, God will discipline you, but it's always with a purpose of awakening you to the sort of God he really is. This defeat will ultimately lead to Israel respecting and worshiping God and the ark in its appropriate way. You'll see in a few weeks. So the question is, where does this story then begin to hit you? Are you trying to get the blessing of God without submitting to him? Are you, are you trying to coerce or manipulate God with your religiosity or, or your behavior? And, and listen, you never say that out loud. You never admit that. But just between you and kind of your motives right now, do you really want God? Or do you just want what he can give you? The call for Israel and the call for us is to repent to turn away from this. This is a warning passage, church, for us to get out of the box. Let me quote Hebrews one more time. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, when we come to texts like, like this story and when we see examples of your judgment, it can quickly stir up in us unrest. It can quickly stir up in us fear, and dismay, and worry. And yet, Lord, I hope that as we have studied this passage, we see that even, Lord, when your judgment and your discipline come on us, it is always to bring more fully about your purposes for this world and your desire for us to more closely and intimately follow you. 
Lord, I pray we learn the lesson of this story and apply it to our lives, that that where we are seeking to use you for our own benefit, want the kingdom without the king, Lord, I do pray that you would you would cause maybe a storm in our life. Not to beat us down, but to wake us up. Not to break us to the point where we can't be recovered, but to, to bring us back into right relationship with you. And if we are in those storms right now, I pray, Lord, that we would by faith hold our hand up to you, asking for your hand and trust that, Lord, most often you will drag us through that storm for our good to blow away every part of us that doesn't look like you, that we might become closer, deeper, and more fervent followers of you in the end. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this warning and we pray we would heed it today. In the name of Jesus, we pray and by the power of the spirit, amen.